While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. talk about international pie day do you want to talk about spring training baseball i don't want to talk about baseball i don't want to talk about sick well i don't have much to say about pie day except that it was international pie day you don't have much to say about pie day except every year you go to this insane party where people eat pies and then vote on the best pie and win prizes for the pies that's true. Except for that elaborate thing that nobody else does. Like, Do you know I that that's don't, true? I don't, even know if I, I don't even know if I tweeted about Pi Day yesterday. Like, that's how little I have invested in it. But let me tell you this, Andrew. Okay. <laughs> yesterday's, we're recording this on a Sunday. Yesterday's Pi Day won't happen again for another hundred years. Yeah, of, I know. With our it was like the dinky Pi calendar. Day equinox or something. So at like I don't know the digits of pi at like nine twenty six three point one four one five nine that's as far as I know. Uh, it might be like two six five three are the next ones. Okay. So at, we did a toast at nine twenty six fifty three. The best part was that none of us knew what to toast to. <laughs> we just we did, it was we did a ten second countdown like it was Happy New Year. Everyone just kind of was like it's like when you sing the birthday song but no one's quite sure like. If people go by their nickname or their regular name and everyone goes, happy birthday, dear Andrew. Oh, you mean you mean the work version of yeah. happy birthday? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I mean. All right. <laughs> we all kind of went, three, two, one, happy pie day. <laughs> it um, seems like pie is the thing. Like that's That's the easy one. Yeah, you just eat pie and enjoy it. I hope Toast everyone pie, ate pie. Eat it's pie. far better than St. Patrick's Day, in my opinion. But we don't need to go there. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been reading to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And I did not get drunk this St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, I forgot that it was St. Patrick's Day. Is that today? Well, they were celebrating it today and yesterday because St. Patrick's Day is like a drinking holiday now right well i mean when it falls on a weekend then just the whole weekend is gone if i when if when i drank anything it was not in celebration of saint patrick's day it was just because i was drinking some beer (laughs) (laughs) that's fine but what we do on this podcast is we talk about books specifically books that we haven't read before Uh uh-huh um Every week, one of us reads something and then explains it to the other one, and we talk about the author and the themes and all kinds of fun stuff. Correct. You know, themes. Yeah. (laughs) What? (laughs) So this week, Craig, what what did you read and why? I read Tis a Pity, She's a Whore by uh, John Ford, who is a 17th century English dramatist and playwright. Um, So it's a play, not a book. Surprise, 
Um, <laughs> and it was actually recommended to us by a listener and Patreon patron of the show, uh, Nada, who um, suggested that it would be fun if we bumped this to the top of our queue. You could, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, So yeah, so I had a, I have a collection on my bookshelf from the Blackwell anthologies called Renaissance Drama, an anthology of plays and entertainments. And it's got <laughs> it's got this awesome illustration on the cover that's like a bunch of dudes in medieval like clothes. There's a woman holding like a butter knife. There's a guy ostensibly killing another man with a handkerchief while he plays backgammon against another guy. Um which, which play is that? I don't know which play it is. It's the black the backgammon murders by William <laughs> Shakespeare um <laughs> but so I by Fred Shakespeare <laughs> uh I purchased this book as part of an English Renaissance drama class that I took at uh at our college at our alma mater um and I was supposed to read this one I don't think I did um and if I did read it then I broke the podcast so <laughs> oops I think, I mean, does it count if you've forgotten about it so completely that you don't remember that you read it? Because I think, like, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Philip K. Dick and about, like, perception versus reality. I think Ooh. if we perceive that we didn't read the book, then that's just as good that's as not having read it. That's probably just as good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, this is this falls under the broad category of things Craig was assigned to read while he was in school and didn't, which is basically the impetus for this show. It's like half the podcast. <laughs> uh, so if you are new to the show, you will join the rest of our listeners in wondering how Craig graduated from anything um, with all these things that he didn't read. It's the gentleman's sea. <laughs> This overdue brought to you today by the gentleman's sea. The th when I was looking up this book, I realized we've been saying it wrong the whole this whole time. Like we say, "Tis a pity she's a whore," and the actual title is just "Tis pity she's a whore." Oh, good call, Andrew. Yeah. Let me actually, so... look at the. Oh, you're right. Yep, you're right because it's the last line of the play. We'll like get this whole for weeks and weeks. This whole time we've been saying it wrong, but that's yeah, fine. That's because fine. it has been called. Many different things. Precisely. Because, um, yeah, people have found the title and the subject matter kind of objectionable. So it's been called um, Giovanni and Annabella, which I think is just like the main character's names. Yep. Or sometimes just the brother and sister. Yes. Which is not super descriptive. <laughs> no. Uh, we'll get to what that is in just a second. We should probably talk yeah. about John Ford first. Now, he, this guy is a contemporary of Shakespeare, right? I double checked the dates. Uh, he was born in 1586, so he was certainly alive while Shakespeare was alive. Uh, he was a teenager when the bulk of Shakespeare's like best stuff was being published. You know, sure. I think 1601 is Hamlet, so John Ford's like 15, and like I, I guess Hamlet is maybe his Nirvana. Like it's his. He's like reading Hamlet under the bleachers. Like, yeah, this is the real <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Uh, so he went away to, uh, he was born out in Devonshire, but he moved into London to study and become a lawyer in 1602. And he got suspended from the Middle Temple, which is a training college for lawyers, presumably for financial reasons. And he got back in several years later by like 
writing some pamphlets that were about people who might give him money to go back to school. <laughs> uh, he I mean, published... People still do that today. I mean, what what's a grant application? But <laughs> like a, a a work about how somebody is so great, and so they should give you money. Well, so like he wrote a he published this elegy called uh, what was it called? Uh, uh, Fame's Memorial, which was an elegy of Charles Blunt, and he wrote something called Honor Triumphant, which was a pamphlet written in connection with jousts surrounding the visit of a Danish king. So, like, <laughs> can you imagine, okay, today we're, we're experiencing, you know, a higher education financial bubble that is just waiting to burst, right? We've talked about this on previous shows. Yeah. And uh, you are in your sophomore year. You want to go back. You want to spend your sec- your junior year abroad in Japan or something, but you, you can't afford it, so you have to drop out. Who do you write a blog about that gets you enough money to go back to school? Donald Trump. <laughs> okay. I don't know why I was thinking Kim Kardashian, but you could. I mean, I feel like there's so much written about her already from day to day that like she can't she just can't process it anymore. Or like not even that, just that she she's got like the supply and demand of that equation is really messed up. Mm. Like they, they're, the supply far outstrips the demand. Whereas your version of Donald Trump is on the internet all day, like looking for things that are nice that people said about him for once. Yeah, I mean, have you read his Twitter account? Pretty much everybody <laughs> thinks he's a clown. So, <laughs> yeah, if I'm Donald Trump and I can find Oi. somebody to defend me, like this, this kid thinks I'm doing a good job. I'm gonna pay for the rest of his college. I'm Donald Trump. Like a, <laughs> that's a good you're fired. Donald Trump. You're fired from being out of school. You're back in school. So I write an elegy about how his, whatever his hair situation is, <laughs> is fine. And then he gives me money to go back to law school. Yeah, that's how it works. Nailed it. All right. Uh, so after John Ford wrote about uh, Donald Trump, he got back into school and he graduated and then was writing prose pamphlets and poems. And he started writing plays first as a collaborator I don't know how much, like, is that a thing you're aware of, Andrew, is, like, all these kind of weird collaborations that happened in Renaissance drama? I mean, I'm not super <laughs> up on my Renaissance collaborations, <laughs> no. Well, it's, it's, I ask that question mainly because, like, every once in a while you'll hear, oh, we found a new Shakespeare play. And it turns out that, like, maybe Shakespeare helped a dude with a draft of his play. And it's actually kind of co-authored or um, some other guy wrote it for the most part. And you can kind of he cribbed from Shakespeare a little. Oh, OK, so it's like when a movie is from the mind of M. Night Shyamalan yes. instead of written by M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> Precisely. All right. Uh, so there were a lot of and there were a lot of less uh, unfortunate collaborations that were actual collaborations. Uh, so that's how John Ford got started as a player. He started working with Thomas Decker and John Webster and William Rowley. Um, I've heard of those guys, and I'm sure <laughs> I did read Thomas Decker's The Roaring Girl, but I couldn't tell you what it's about, so I might as well read it for the show. I believe it's about The Roaring Girl. Yeah, I would hope so. It's actually about a monkey. Um, Then in the 20s, Ford started writing on his own, which is where Tis Pity, She's a Whore comes from. Um, he also wrote a play called The Broken Heart and the Lover's Melancholy. I know Broken Heart 
has been performed uh, in the last like 20 years. People are aware of it. Uh, it's interesting to me that he's writing in this period of time because we are not in the Elizabethan era anymore. Andrew, how well do you know your Sp- your English monarchs? I'm just putting you on the spot. Oh. <laughs> I know that there are English monarchs. Okay. Many of them are named Henry or Charles <laughs> or Elizabeth. Uh, this is actually Charles the first. So you're All right. good. Good job. Uh, we went from. I, of course, I knew that, but <laughs> I was just making sure that all the listeners knew. We went from Queen Elizabeth, uh, who I'm sure you're familiar with, with her neck frills, uh, mm-hmm. and then we went to King James the first or sixth of Scotland, uh, and then his son is King Charles the first, and he's king during John Ford's time. What I think is interesting about Charles I that'll come up as we talk about this play is that he was married to a Catholic woman and uh, named a man to the Archbishop of Canterbury that introduced a bunch of uh, anti-Calvinist and kind of not so Protestant reforms to the English church. Mm -hmm. And this all precedes like the English Civil War of the 1640s. And there's some stuff in this play that is set in Italy that at least in my modern opinion, does not feel so kind to the Catholic Church. <laughs> uh, so I don't know like what exactly Ford is up to there, but I, I it's worth pointing out, I think, just because um, Ford was writing at a time where this was politically in the climate. You know? Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the only other kind of contextual note I want to give about this play is that in 1621, I think... Uh, Richard Burton wrote a book, let's call it, called uh, The Anatomy of Melancholy, which is like this vaguely encyclopedic, vaguely stream of consciousness textbook about melancholy as a, as a human condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of which is the lover, like love melancholy, where, you know, and we might refer to it as kind of clinical depression or something like this now, but this... You know, you're in the system of the four humors at this point. Uh, and, the you know, like I said before, Ford wrote a play called The Lover's Melancholy. He seemed to be read on his Burton a little bit. Uh, I think it's just interesting to point that out because the, the type of behavior that we see in this play kind of takes certain feelings for other people for granted. And that seems to be... Uh, or like that's just a condition like your love is a condition it's not a thing that you choose or anything like that right um, and also i wanted an excuse to ask you andrew like what makes you feel melancholy these days Ooh, what makes me feel melancholy yeah i feel like maybe i had some seasonal affective disorder <laughs> this year i mean february is a bad month for that and i still feel like we're reeling from the yeah. effects of February. Like you don't get over February just because you turn the page on the calendar. That's correct. March is <laughs> March is all too eager to ape February sometimes. I'll tell yeah. you that much. I uh, guess I get I mean it's, it's kind of a related thing, but I get melancholy when you have like a day where the snow melts and then like the next day it snows a lot again. And it's just like just when you thought you were out, they pull you back in kind of thing going on. <laughs> okay. I get melancholy about melting snow because it is neither no snow nor snow. Like I like snow enough as it is as a thing. 
that I don't like the when like it's gross road snow mm-hmm. that is just like an imperfect version of beautiful snowflakes. Right. Or if it's just like the mushy brown Ew. Like awfulness <laughs> that's all over the sidewalks. It's funny, like the snow on our street melted. And you know, some of these drifts have been up there for, you know, a couple months now because they'll get like people park on top of them so they get packed down and they don't like they block water from draining into the gutters like it's supposed to and it's, it's you just have this like layer of permafrost that builds up over the course of, of some weeks and now that it's finally melting all the way like you get to see all the layers of like kit cat wrappers <laughs> and cardboard boxes and like someone's old christmas wreath that has just been buried <laughs> In the snow since since January. Someone's like CRT TV is just there buried in yeah. snow. Yeah. What is it about living in cities where people just throw CRT TVs out onto the sidewalk? Well then know. because other people really like like smashing them. That's they're just helping people out. <laughs> it's for I the think. public good. Um speaking of the public good, before we move on to the play itself, uh Andrew, you want to take a quick break? We'll just let the listeners know about our patreon okay what is our what is patreon and why might people want to go to patreon.com slash overdue pod patreon is a a service that lets people donate directly to artists who are creating work that they like and so like craig says we've got one set up on patreon.com slash overdue pod people can choose to give us a certain amount of money a month and we have a few different reward tiers for things that we can we can do for you um when you are donating at a certain level like the last two episodes of the show and then another couple from here um were all reader suggestions that that we are bumping to the top of our list because they have been generous enough to to donate five dollars a month to our cause and uh we we spend this money mostly on uh hosting and book costs for now but you know as we amass more um more supporters we can start thinking about other things to to do with that money and other ways to like spread the word about the show. Yeah, that's the next step I think that we're every, a lot of people wrote in over the past week, you know, talking about ebooks and this service called Overdrive, which is a a way to like rent books and and Kindle library rentals and it's actually really useful information that I don't know that Andrew and I knew about. Um but so one of our resolutions to uh help grow the show is to kind of use the support that we're getting through patreon to get the word out and and bring new people into the show because the listeners are kind of at this point driving us onward it's inspiring to to have you guys reach out to us each week so we we kind of want to grow the community as it were. right and and like we said last week you know one of the it's really great to have those um, lending resources around so we can use them but one of the reasons why we like Patreon and, you know, buying the books instead of instead of renting them is that this actually lets us through the show, you know, support the literary community. So I think there's I think I think that's that's the reason why I would rather buy than than borrow. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Let's on with this play. Okay, let's do it. Patreon.com slash OverduePod. Thank you so much for everybody who's already donating. If you're not donating and you want to, we have all the information you need on that page. So there you go. Great. So, Andrew, what do you know about this play? 
I know that it is about incest, and I know that contemporaries and scholars for hundreds of years afterward did not really <laughs> like it that much. Like it's the subject matter was so offensive that there are some like collections of Ford plays that just omit it. They just don't have that one. That is fair. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so the play opens with a friar and a man named Giovanni coming on stage. And already you get a sense that the friar doesn't want any more of whatever Giovanni is talking about. Uh, so Giovanni is a young man who's recently back from university study in Bologna. He lives in Parma. And I've seen this trope in previous uh, Renaissance dramas. You see it in Hamlet also, like Hamlet comes back from university. Uh, and so you have this maybe late 20s, early 30s person who feels like they have a handle on the world because they've read about it in books, you know? Okay. And like us. Like us. <laughs> uh, and they are like a... Like Boy Meets World, every day, every week, they learn something that they didn't know, and they run up against <laughs> an obstacle or a Mr. Feeney or, you know, whatever. And Man, we're just killing 10 to 20-year-old <laughs> pop culture references this show. So Giovanni's particular Mr. Feeney, who is a friar named Friar Bonaventura, uh, Giovanni has confessed to Friar Bonaventura that he loves his sister. Um, I'm going to read a quote for you, Andrew. Doesn't that just translate to friar, like good luck? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay. I'm just, all right, just making sure. Now go on with your, go on with your thing. Um, <clears throat> so he says to the father, must I not do what all men else may love? And the friar says, yes, you may love, fair son. Uh, and he goes on to say that he wants, that his love is of something so beautiful that the gods would make a god of it themselves if they could. And already you get the sense that Giovanni is thinking about religion in a way that is not to the friar's liking. Um, the friar is talking about, you know, questions that lead to devilish atheism. And like even before this idea of brother-sister love has brought up, Giovanni's book learning has endowed in him a certain questioning of the established authority. Okay. So then he says, Shall a peevish sound, a customary form, from man to man, of brother and of sister, be a bar twixt my perpetual happiness and me? Uh, say that we had one father, say one womb, gave both us life and birth, are we not therefore each to, each to other bound so much the more by nature, by the links of blood, of reason? Nay, if you will have it even of religion to be ever one, one soul, one flesh, one love, one heart, one all. Uh, shall then for, uh, and then the friar's like, you're crazy. And then yeah, she, dude is basically <laughs> saying like, we came from the same place. Like, it's natural that we would be attracted to Precisely. each other. Precisely. <laughs> we're just like, we're, we're two peas in a pod and it's time for those peas to get it on is what he's saying. Hop back in the pod together. Uh, and, uh. Friar's like, you're crazy. And Giovanni says, shall then, for that I am her brother born, my joys be ever banished from her bed? And that's when he explicitly is like, I really want to make love to my sister. And Friar, please, you gotta help me I out. Please, please, for a second, just, God, just make, 
love with my sister. Oh my god. So what's weird about this, <laughs> oh my, right? Already it's like what are we supposed to think about this? This is the first scene of the play. We have no previous knowledge of these characters. It's not like we get to see Giovanni just like going about his studies and then all of a sudden he sees his sister and she's hot and he doesn't know what to do, right? There's no mistaken identity where he's like, who's that lady? Except I will say that when uh, Annabella sees him for the first time on stage, there is a moment where she's like, hey, who's that guy? He's super hot. Who's that hot dude? Who's that hot guy? And then her servants I like the way like, we have the same nose. I... <laughs> and then her her like uh, attending woman kind of points out that it's her brother, and that doesn't change her mind. Um, cool. So That's what's super cool? Super weird, right? So what complicates this is that Annabella's father, Florio, also Giovanni's father, right. is trying to get her married before he dies. So we've got like a couple of suitors. We've got Bergetto, Grimaldi, and Saranzo. Now, of course, Andrew, she doesn't love any of them. Of course. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like unclear when I was reading it. It was unclear if I'm supposed to find all of this funny or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's something I read about is like part of the reason why people, you know, just disliked it. Like it was critically reviled for so long was not just the subject matter but because like ford was insufficiently critical of his characters like i think that the fact that he's not explicitly editorializing about how you should feel about this m- makes it less palatable like it's it's kind of got it's almost got like a lolita thing going on yeah oh definitely yeah. Um, they are certainly the main characters they are certainly the protagonists and a scene or two after, um, so like the play introduces this central conflict, then it introduces all of the suitors real fast. Ford knows what he's doing. Um, then we get a scene between Giovanni and Annabella where Giovanni, basically, he might as well be in Romeo and Juliet. Like the types of lines that he's saying, like, such a pair of stars as are thine eyes would like Promethean fire, if gently glanced, give life to senseless stones. Like, that's not some bad wooing language, but dude, it's your sister. (laughs) You know, like, and then she doesn't know what to do with it. So he pulls out his dagger and is like, if you really want to know how I feel, cut open my heart and you'll see all the things that I'm saying are true. You'll see it on my heart. But that seems like, that seems like a really permanent solution to... (laughs) To finding out if he was lying or not. Like, what if, what if that was what a polygraph test was? Was, was that they just tore out your heart? We have to, to look at your lying. heart. <laughs> it's like the it's like the witch thing. Like, oh, we'll throw you into this pond, and if you sink, you're not a witch. Yes, but you're still dead. Yes, precisely. <laughs> but that's fine. So what Ford is kind of setting up is this this love that, at least as we witness it, tries to transcend the relationship right um the two of them end up getting on their knees and basically saying like don't betray me to your mirth or hate you know love me or kill me right now like this is either what we're doing this is our lives or i need to die because 
I care. I love you so much. You know. Okay. Uh, and then the end of Act Two, Scene Two, is Giovanni saying, uh, "Let's learn to court in smiles, to kiss and sleep," and then they leave. So the next time you see Annabella, you know what they did. They had sex. They had sex. Cool. Cool. So. This okay, so that's this is the down. weirdest Game of Thrones book that I've ever heard. Yes, about. it feels like Game of Thrones. <laughs> so then, so then we have the suitors, right? And I, I want to kind of run through them as best I can without confusing our. How important are they? Are they important at all? Or they, are they are just kind of foil for. They're Giovanni? they're pretty important. Um, okay, Saranzo is this guy who claims to really love Annabella. Excuse me. <laughs> I think you right, might have to a good start. Yeah. Uh, he has a servant named Vasquez, but Saranzo is from out of town, and he had a relationship with this woman named Hippolyta, who like told her husband to go on this trip so that she could be with the man that she was cheating on him with. Turns out that that guy is Richardetto, who's pretending to be a doctor in town, so that he can get revenge on Hippolyta and Saranzo. All right? Cool. Does that make sense? No, but let's keep going. All right. <laughs> There's another guy who's Grimaldi. The first time we meet him, he is fighting Saranzo's servant. They they call him a Roman. I think that's them like saying that he's of a slightly lower class and a little brutish. All right. Okay. And then there's Burghetto who doesn't speak in verse, he only speaks in prose, which is an easy indicator that he's either a clown or of lower class. I think he is the nephew of a of a royal or an official in town, so I don't think it's that he's low class, it's just that he is clownish and hangs out with his servant, Poggio, and they make goofs all the time. Right. Class clown, got it. Class clown. So they're all, the three of those guys are competing for Annabella, and meanwhile, Hippolyta is running around trying to get revenge on Saranzo. Okay. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> but then what happens is Burghetto falls in love with this uh, this other girl, Philotis? 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 Okay. And they have to go get married secretly for some reason. This, this part I didn't really understand. Yeah, I need to like get out a corkboard and a bunch of yarn yeah. to put this all together. The reason that it's worth noting is that uh Grimaldi gets enlisted to uh to win he is told that to win Annabella's love he should kill Saranzo, right? And all these people want Saranzo dead. Unfortunately, there's some mistaken identity stuff and instead of Saranzo getting murdered, Burghetto gets murdered. Oh no! Okay. All right. So Gardetto's is murdered. Yep. You you got the names right. Totally. Right. Uh, I want to find this quote. Uh, so after Grimaldi, this is where I think the the religion stuff comes in. You know, all this while Annabella and Grimaldi are not Grimaldi. Annabella and Giovanni. This is so confusing. I realize. Uh, okay. Are like they're having their secret love, and Annabella doesn't know what to do with these suitors. Meanwhile, the suitors are all like making plans to kill each other. That's kind of what what I meant. Um, so Burghetto gets killed by Grimaldi, and they take, you know, their complaints to the Cardinal of Parma, 
you know, he's the he works for the Pope. They're like, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna take our complaints to the big man, right? Okay. And they find that Grimaldi is already under the protection of the Cardinal, and the Cardinal's uh, he has confessed his sins of murder to the Cardinal, and the Cardinal says, uh, for this events, I here receive Grimaldi into His Holiness's protection. He is no common man, but nobly born of prince's blood. Uh, and if more you seek, you must go to Rome, for he shall thither. Uh, learn more wit for shame, bury your dead, uh, away Grimaldi, leave him. And everyone's like, yo, did the Cardinal just like let that guy off the hook entirely? <laughs> no one is happy he's rich. about this. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's the first indication that this play is critiquing established religious order. Um, by at the very outset being like, hey, what if incest wasn't so bad? <laughs> and then when like things that we've already established are also super bad are not punished correctly, um, the play sets up this kind of world where what happens to those people, right? Yeah, so I mean, it seems like it could be commentary on religion, both both in the sense that like... I don't know, maybe maybe the religious people shouldn't be the ones calling all these shots. And also like maybe religion sides with the powerful and wealthy over the over the needs of the you know, the masses or something. Yeah. Uh so then where we we go from there is that uh Annabella Andrew, what do you think she has illicit sex with her brother? What do you think is gonna complicate this play? What do you think is gonna make things unfortunate and difficult i feel like either they've got to be like walked in on or she has to get pregnant yep ding 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 put on the board she's pregnant (laughs) uh thanks louis anderson so (laughs) so the friar is like okay you're pregnant uh because the friar knows about it and her servant no putana knows about it and do either of them want to know about it or do they just know about it? Putana seems okay with it. She seems to be on board. I think because she thinks all the suitors are dumb. Um, she's on board with it. The friar doesn't like it at all. So the friar recommends that she get married to Saranzo anyway to kind of protect her, right? Save your honor, okay. marry Saranzo. Pretend that it's his. Pretend that it's his. Everything will be okay. Uh, she discovers that Saranzo does kind of love her, um, so she's maybe thinking that it'll work out. Uh, at their wedding, to make it even more Game of Thrones, uh, there's a performance by some dancers, like, you know, like what happened. Okay. One of them turns out to be Saranzo's ex-lover, Hippolyta, who was planning to murder him at his wedding. Okay. Turns out that Saranzo's servant double-crossed her, and she dies. Good work. <laughs> Good work, Vasquez. Vasquez sucks. Every other every other scene that he's in, he double-crosses someone, and I was literally yelling at the book I was reading. I was, <laughs> I was very surprised. Uh, to what end is he double-crossing people? Is that just the function he has to serve in the story? Yeah, or what's he's, all in, he's all in service of Saranzo. He's trying to help his master. Okay. Um. And then, uh, so Saranzo discovers that she is pregnant. I think probably because he married her thinking she's a virgin. 
And then the next scene we see between them, he's dragging her on stage by her hair, calling her a whore. Okay. He, Did he find something out that he wasn't supposed to know? Yeah, probably. Uh, found out that she's pregnant, and then he's trying to get her to confess who it was. She won't. Uh, so then Vasquez is like, I'm on the case. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and he ends up talking to her her tutoress and servant, Putana, and he gets her, he gets her to admit that it was Giovanni's kid. What do you think... Vasquez does next to Putana, Andrew. Like, what would like, what would he do to repay her for telling him this precious information? He either smooches her the biggest wettest kiss, <laughs> or he I don't know. Judging from this play, probably kills her. He hires a bunch of bandits to take her away and gouge out her eyes. You okay, know. great. So she won't see anything. So again. she won't see anything so terrible ever again. <laughs> Uh, that's one solution and meanwhile Saranzo has locked Annabella up in her room and she writes this letter in her own blood to like tell her brother that they need to confess what they've done uh, did they just not have ink were they out <laughs> I don't know that part's really unclear okay uh, she gives it to the friar who delivers the letter but Giovanni's like no he's he's all super pissed at this point and he's like I don't I can't listen to this. She did this under duress. I I can't believe that she's changing her mind, et cetera, et cetera. And Saranzo has this feast, right, to celebrate his wedding. Because it's all going so well so far. it's all going so well. What do you think Saranzo wants to do to Giovanni at this feast, Andrew? Does he want to kill him? Yep. It's always killing. Just all the killing. He's going to kill him. Uh, Giovanni goes and meets Annabella first. And what do you think he does? Kill, kills her. Kills her. He kills her. Kills. Everybody gets killed. And then he shows up at the feast with a bloody heart on his sword. Her heart. Because, you know. Because it was a potluck and he had to bring something. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, he proceeds to kill Saranzo, uh, Giovanni, and Annabella's dad dies from a heart attack literally does uh, somebody throw the heart at him or no is it his own heart that no it's <laughs> his hope. They, they say he dies of heartbreak okay uh, and then um giovanni gets killed um a bunch of bandits stab him including vasquez and then vasquez like confesses that he hated giovanni's dad all along and was there to like put an end to all this nonsense uh and then the cardinal says all right well this is terrible uh the church is gonna take everyone's like gold and diamonds and stuff um literally (laughs) he says he says take up these slaughtered bodies see them buried and all the gold and jewels or whatsoever confiscate by the canons of the church we seize upon to the pope's proper use what is the pope's proper use of gold and jewels, Andrew. I think buying a bigger Pope hat. <laughs> uh, and then the Cardinal has the last lines. Um, we shall have time to talk at large of all, but never yet incest and murder have so strangely met of one so young, so rich in nature's store who could not say tis pity. She's a whore. End of play. Who could not, who could not say that end of play. <laughs> Ha, <laughs> ha,
What the F definitely, did I just read this week? Definitely like a Romeo and Juliet with incest vibe. Yes. Going on. Precisely. Because like these are they're star-crossed lovers and their love ends with their death, but also their brother and sister. Yes. Well, and there's like there's the other guy, there's Saranzo who's supposed to marry her. So like com- the comparisons to Romeo and Juliet are not unhelpful right because um, mm-hmm. they're not supposed to be together but they do it anyway and there are other people who want to be with her which cause problems um except in romeo and juliet like part of the tragedy is that uh they their you know the parents strife prevents them from being able to go to anyone with what is happening mm-hmm. here replace parent strife with incest <laughs> But I don't know. I feel like you know we've we've made some jokes about about that and and how it's you know obviously upsetting and and did prevent centuries of people from studying this play. Uh, but like we said earlier, Ford seems to not be wholly condemning them. Yeah, he kind of is painting them as an extreme that leads to extreme consequences. Uh. But it's almost like he is interested in this idea of like individual feeling rising above convention or accepted authority. I don't know. Mm. It still seems like everybody ends pretty poorly though. Like (laughs) this is not really a ringing endorsement of incest from my to my view. No, it's not. But yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't know. It's I like just I the character I keep coming back to in my mind is the friar because one his name is just like good luck guys. <laughs> Have fun. No. And two like I imagine him like when Giovanni's trying to tell him all this stuff. Have, have you watched Friday Night Lights? Yeah, uh some of it, yeah. Okay, so there's this scene like Buddy Garrity who's the big blustery football booster guy has had an affair. Okay. And he comes up to coach Eric Taylor, who's the best guy. Yep. And and he says, oh, I was unfaithful to my wife. And immediately the coach is like, nope, nope, nope. Don't want to hear it. Nope. Go away. <laughs> nope. And that's what I imagine this friar is like, is he's just like, dude, I don't stop telling me. <laughs> but Giovanni tells him anyway. Yeah, that is correct. Well, and I think the real tension between them is that the friar honestly cares for Giovanni like he wants him to be well he wants him to go to heaven you know and Giovanni has reached this point in his life which is perhaps you know certainly not the uh the common belief in the early 1600s right he is Mm -hmm. feeling like that is not what I'm interested in um (laughs) I don't necessarily believe that he talks about God's plural he talks about like a capitalized nature, you know, if that makes sense, sure. mm-hmm. um, which Friar Bonaventura has no time for. He doesn't believe in any of that. And he is able to kind of get through to Annabella, especially as Annabella kind of, even though I think Saranzo really sucks hard in this play, <laughs> uh, she comes to realize that she really made a fool of him uh, and kind of set him up for this immense failure 
that he invested his love and life in her and then she was pregnant by her brother um whoops whoops but so she kind of repents and the the letter that the friar delivers the blood letter that he delivers um (laughs) he's attempting to you know as she's attempting is to get giovanni back on that path uh and he won't have it he's he's too self-righteous at that point and, and kind of too prideful of this love that he felt like he should have uh, uh, and then when he so he's just another guy who thinks he deserves everything precisely great um but then it's interesting because then when he's dying at the end he does talk about finally getting to see her later like in the afterlife he talks about an afterlife in a, in kind of a way that feels conventional given his stance against religion elsewhere in the play yeah, i was gonna say well i mean like maybe maybe his sister being up there is the only thing that could make him want to go to heaven that's possible yeah, yeah. and th- they do even kind of talk about what will heaven be like for them will they get to uh be together or will they be kept separate um i don't know if i bookmarked there's a really bizarre passage after Annabella confesses that she's pregnant, when the when Friar Goodluck is telling her <laughs> that she needs to go marry Saranso to make up for it. Oh, here mm-hmm. it is. He describes like hell to her in great detail. Uh and he says, There stand these wretched things who have dreamt out whole years in lawless sheets and secret incests, cursing one another. Then you will wish each kiss your brother gave had been a dagger's point. Then you shall hear how he will cry, Oh, would my wicked sister had first been damned when she did yield to lust. Uh, uh, That dagger thing is prescient. That dagger thing is... There's a lot of really (laughs) prescient language, uh, especially going back to even when Giovanni is confessing his love to her and saying, like, take this dagger and cut open my heart. Like, rip out my heart and you'll see how much I love you. Guy has a real tenuous understanding of how <laughs> of how hearts work uh and then later for him to show up with the the heart on that sword there's a forward in this book uh this like tome that i have that I'm, i don't know who the author is so i will apologize for that um but kind of talks about that image being the the like encapsulation of the play like that heart on the sword and how it might relate to all sorts of things. Like it has, it has a organizing metaphor for the play. Um, but also as it relates to maybe other kind of love poems that might've been being traded around that time. And it was certainly an image that carried weight. And also he talked about how the fact that if you saw this in the early 1600s, they probably came out with like a pig's heart on a sword. <laughs> Like, they didn't just come out with a sword stabbed through a rubber heart or anything like that, you know? If you were staging this, would you, like, go to the market and get, like, a cow heart to use every night well, for the show? Well, think- I mean, I don't know. Maybe. Thinking about it now. Or I would definitely have a, like, a thing that oozed something. Like, sure. the blood is necessary, I think, at this point for this play to work. It's cer- This type of revenge tragedy kind of relishes in that element of it um but yeah i don't know it's a weird play i i as it went on i had less time i had like less trouble deciding what the vibe was 
But certainly for the first half, as I said, I couldn't quite tell if I was supposed to find it funny. What now? What was the vibe by the end? I mean, it sounds like it was supposed to be a tragedy. But... Yes, that was certainly okay. the vibe by the end. There was, a, okay. you know, people behaving in spite of information is like a hallmark of a good tragedy. <laughs> uh, but the earlier sections, especially with Borghetto, like Borghetto's kind of a funny dude, and even when he's dying, he's saying stuff that's sort of goofy. Like he gets stabbed through the stomach. And makes a crack about how he's fairly certain he can't pee in both directions. Like, how is the front and back of him wet? Like, that's the type of thing that Borghetto says when he dies. Funny guy. Put it on his tombstone. <laughs> he was making pee jokes up until the last. Borghetto he died was as he lived. Making penis jokes. <laughs> uh, and also, I don't know about you, Andrew, when you were taught, like, Shakespeare or or any type of drama from this era... I had a teacher in high school who claimed that when he taught it in another class, he wrote the words like sex and death up on the board. Mm-hmm. And then any time we were talking about a particular passage where it might have possibly been about either of those things, he would like blatantly point to one or the other. <laughs> so like in this instance, any mention of a dagger or a sword like might very well be purposefully phallic or sexual okay. you know interesting um i don't know if you ever had a teacher that did that. no i never had like... that that <laughs> dead poet society experience <laughs> oh captain my captain this all sounds like penis jokes that's <laughs> <laughs> uh i i don't have anything else andrew do you have any other questions i know uh, i don't know not really i mean it just it seems like I talked a lot, I'm sorry. An interesting subversion of what at that point would have been tropes, I guess. Yeah, it's, you know, we're 20 years out from the uh, English Reformation where for a period of time, like, all the theaters got closed and everything. um, Mm -hmm. And we're past, you know, like I said, Shakespeare died in 1616. So we're still kind of riffing on what he was up to. I guess not right. that, yeah. It's, you know, not to say that the everyone in England at the time was like, "Oh God, Shakespeare, yeah, Shakespeare." <laughs> uh, I'll never be as good as him. <laughs> but certainly, as we interpret it now, that's that's worth looking at. Um, I would like to go back. I don't know that I will, but to fully. <laughs> so how? So you wouldn't really like to. Uh, you, just, you would like to like to. I would. Okay. So I'll say that there were <laughs> there were parts of this play that were probably more confusing than they needed to be, and we've said this before. Like that is just what it is to read, particularly Renaissance verse on the page. Right. Um. Certainly, stuff that I missed or had to read a couple times to get. So I'm sure there's stuff that I, you know. Yeah, you just need a good like act or two or scene or two to to get into the headspace where you're like understanding everything that everyone is saying. Yeah. Um and whenever I also have this thing where whenever I read works of this era that are not Shakespeare, I'm like trying to judge if I like the language or not. Like the nice thing about reading Shakespeare is you're he's been pretty well canonized, so for the most part you can be like, yeah, this language is like quantifiably good. Right. 
uh, enough people said so. Yeah, so that's over a long enough span of time. So it's a good place to start, and then you can kind of find the passages that speak to you or, or confuse you or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I'm reading other playwrights of that era, I do find it a little bit harder to be like, is this just kind of referential? Is it as good as I think it is? I don't know. Um, yeah, I come to, I come down pretty positive on on Ford. I think. Um, I, I, what I don't know is, and I know this from studying Christopher Marlowe a little bit, that uh, I, I don't know how easy it is to act. Um, Shakespeare is incredibly easy to act in the way that, like, the thoughts come in a way that's very active, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Um, People are kind of wearing stuff on their sleeves. Well, yeah. Being very, like theatrical and big about everything yeah well and that the verse kind of supports you doing something to the other person with your words um sure and advancing the action even from a word-to-word level and i'm not i don't know for certain because i just you know haven't seen people act this play out but um it i think it does i think it's pretty good um so that's tis a pity she's tis pity she's a whore. Excuse me. Tis pity she's a whore. Tis pity she's a whore. And what a weird thing for a cardinal to say at the end of the. Why does the cardinal <laughs> say it? Why does he? Why is he the one? <sighs> he sounds like he was the only one left alive. Like who else can? Oh, say can it? I give a weird struck me funny, Andrew? I'm sorry. We're we're supposed to sign yeah. off in just a second. Real quick. There's like a kind of going along with the whole like what is Ford saying about Catholicism in this play. Mostly because, like, why does the Cardinal excuse that guy? And why does he not kill Vasquez after Vasquez killed a bunch of people? Um, there's, like, two lines about uh, Vasquez serving his, span- like, Soranzo because he's Spanish or something. And, like, exacting Spanish revenge on Italians. And then when Soranzo pledges uh, revenge against... Uh, Giovanni Vasquez says of him like now you're now you begin to turn Italian like <laughs> Sor- literally Soranzo says uh, the more I burn and blood shall quench that flame and Vasquez says now you begin to burn Italian it's like there's this like kind of maybe not so subtle xenophobia happening <laughs> sure where Ford is painting southern europeans with a broad brush of violence and conflict i'm not sure yeah. um i mean that goes with the with the roman mention oh yeah too, you're I right guess. yeah uh it it just it's uh, struck me funny because i don't quite know what to do with it and i certainly don't know enough about you know drama and fiction of that time period with respect to that particular like if we wrote a play with French people in it today and they were like behaving in a way that's very French, like that, what is sacre that? Sacre bleu. Sacre bleu. Uh, oh, sacre bleu, my baguette. <laughs> I dropped it off the top of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> the cheese festival is ruined. I'll just go home and play my accordion. Um, <laughs> so, like, all those things we just said, if they were like in a play, people would probably be wondering why we said them. Um, yeah. So I'm just wondering out loud why Ford said any of those things. 
If uh, you know why there you Ford go. would have said any of those things, you can send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. Uh, we also have a Twitter page up at twitter.com slash overduepod and a Facebook page at facebook.com slash overduepod. Craig, if they want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to overduepodcast.com. I almost messed it up. Uh, nice. Where they can find back episodes of the show, Amazon links for the books that we read, and information on our lovely Patreon donors. Again, that's patreon.com slash overduepod. Uh, some of our donors have given at a level where they get to recommend a book and kind of say what it means to them. So please go check that out. Uh, you can also... F- and if, if you have donated and I haven't gotten out, if I haven't reached, reached out to you yet, I am going to be doing that soon. It just... <laughs> that's it's my fault for for being a little pokey on it but i'll try and speed that process up a little bit more um, as we go forward. you can also find a link to our itunes page uh where you can leave us a review or rating it helps people find the show uh amy and timmy and melee 82 i think have all left us reviews recently uh timmy in particular said that uh he, we helped him rethink some of the books that he's already read and that's certainly been kind of the overall process for us on these books so i'm glad that that's resonating out with our listeners mm-hmm. uh, i also want to give shout outs to folks who interacted with us or mentioned us on social media this week that which includes brandon robert michael eric who i kind of got in a f- twitter fight with about ender shadow uh jillian Catherine, who mentioned library ebooks wonderfrau uh on facebook mary eve or mary av i'm not sure Amber, uh, Sean, who pointed out that Philip K. Dick used the I Ching as a plot generator uh, when he was actually writing high, The Man in the High Castle, which I thought was kind of neat. Uh, and Rob and Lee both brought up the Overdrive service for renting books. So thanks, everyone, uh, who used the internet to communicate with us this past week it's a it's actually all those avenues are great ways for other people to discover the show so thank you so much you're doing more than you know andrew what are you reading for next week next week i'm reading the sparrow by mary doria russell i know nothing about it except that it was recommended to us by cassie who's one of our donors sounds good to me and then the week after that you are going to be reading zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance by uh recommended by amanda and scott who are donating you know, as as a block, I guess. Yeah, that's possible. <laughs> Which works for us. Um, all right, guys, we'll be back next week. Thank you so much for listening. And everyone, in the meantime, try to be happy.